Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In early 2000, Tammy Vance checked herself into drug rehab in Columbus, Mississippi. There, she met Lee Stubbs, and the two became close. As they neared the end of the program, excited for the future, they decided to leave and drive back home together. Along with their friend Kim, they headed out, stopping for the night at a motel. But when they awoke the next morning, something was terribly wrong with Kim. She was snoring really loud, and all of a sudden it stopped, and I freaked out. And I told Lee, she's not breathing. She's not breathing. They got on the phone with 911, and I administered CPR until the ambulance got there. At the hospital, doctors found injuries that led them to believe Kim had experienced a violent sexual assault. And despite their efforts to help Kim, the police concluded that Tammy and Lee were actually responsible for what had happened to her. You were a suspect very quickly, so do you remember feeling that way? Do you remember thinking, like, something was off in what they were asking you? I remember thinking they were crazy. Because that was our friend, and we tried to save her. My name is Tammy Vance, and I was wrongfully convicted for 13 years. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Tammy Vance. Tammy Vance was born in San Antonio, Texas, on November 14, 1968, to Sandy and Billy Vance. She has one younger brother, Billy Jr., who goes by the nickname Bubba. Growing up as a child, was it was great. I had a lot of family, um, a lot of loving family. She um, was very close to her dad and her brother and myself. This is Tammy's mom, Sandy Rabelais. We were a very close-knit family. And a traditional Southern family at that, 
with strong Christian values. When Tammy was about three or four, her family left San Antonio for Mississippi. For Tammy, it was a whole different world. Moving from Texas where there's nothing but tumbleweeds and small trees, I remember thinking when we pulled into Mississippi that it was the land of the giants because of the trees. You know, the trees were like so big. Once they adjusted to the new landscape, Sandy saw her daughter enjoying Mississippi. She was a very fun, loving child. She was always very outgoing, always had lots and lots of friends around her. But at home, life had gotten difficult for Tammy. My father was an alcoholic. My mother, she worked two jobs, and basically I raised my younger brother. The situation was tough, but Tammy was a natural caretaker. She has a huge heart, and she would just do anything for anybody that's having a hard time. Like one family, Sandy recalls, who lived down the street from them when Tammy was around 11 or 12. The mother was an alcoholic. She was never there. The dad was struggling to work. It was four of those kids. And she became best friends with them. She brought them home with her. You know, it's like, Mom, you know, they're coming home tonight. I want you to make sure you cook enough supper for them. And she's the one that brought them into the family. And she's the one that, you know, wanted to make sure they were fed and clothed. Eventually, Tammy's father got clean and went into recovery for about eight years. And it was like the best eight years of my life growing up. I actually had my father. You know what I mean? I actually had my father at home, and um, it was great. We had a lot of fun. Um, We'd go four-wheeling on the rivers and, you know, just sports stuff, go to the drag races, and he would take us places. But Tammy couldn't always participate in certain activities because of a disability she has. Tammy's legally blind, so that did have a lot of limitations on what she could and couldn't be involved with. So Tammy made up for her visual limitations by embracing another strength. She was very, very music inclined. She loved uh, to go to concerts, to listen to all different types of music, and to share that with her friends. Do you remember any specific ones that she liked? ACDC, Aria Wagon... What did you think of her liking ACDC? <laughs> well, I wasn't too crazy about the music myself. It wasn't my choice of music, but it was certainly hers and her friend's choice of music. That was probably her biggest interest was different musical bands. And Tammy started looking the part of a rocker, too. Do you have a mullet? Yeah, 1980s. I'm an original hippie and cool. <laughs> you know, peace, love, and rock and roll. Or peace, love, and music. But along with this love of music came a bad habit, using drugs and alcohol. I guess Tammy was about 13 or 14 when we started dealing with the drugs with her. They continued to get worse, and we we finally put her in a treatment center. It was when she came out of the treatment center that uh, she told me she was getting married. To a boy named Ralph, whom she started dating in high school. Ralph was a couple years older than Tammy. At age 16, Tammy dropped out of school to marry him. 
And I felt like they were just way too young to be starting off on that journey. So I did it when I was young and I knew it was just not the answer to a, a good life. You know, I did not want my children to follow in those footsteps, but she seemed pretty determined to do it. For Tammy, things with Ralph were good for a while. But then about two years after they got married, she was sitting on the porch drinking a beer with one of her female friends when she had a wake-up call. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, what is going on here? Why am I more attracted to my friend than my husband? That sent me into a tailspin. Tammy started realizing she was actually more interested in women than men. But Tammy was living in what she describes as a redneck county in the 80s. Being gay was not accepted. I freaked out. What did freaking out look like? Freaking out looked like filing for a divorce, leaving everything I had behind, hitting New Orleans, and I lived homeless for a little while. I left everything behind and I ran. I felt like a freak. Once in New Orleans, Tammy lived on the streets of the city for about six months. And that's kind of when you got into drug use? Yes, ma'am. I, um, unfortunately got addicted to heroin. Tammy had hit bottom trying to run away from who she was, and drugs were a source of consolation. It was when, back when the, uh, all that black tar heroin hit New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hung out with the homeless people, and they were either alcoholics or addicts. And the black tar heroin was so pure. These people were used to their, their heroin being stepped on so many times that the people were falling over dead left and right, and it scared me, and I came home. When she got back home, Tammy decided to be completely honest with her mom about her sexuality. How did you feel about that when she first told you? Very conflicted. Wasn't sure if it was a a phase or if it was a true thing. It was a surprise, especially after the fact that she had been married and she had dated several different guys. So, yes, it did come as a surprise to me. I started studying up on it and reading on it and, you know, just trying to figure out different aspects from it. Of course, as a Christian, I'm, you know, I'm conflicted very much about it, but she is my daughter and I have accepted that that is her lifestyle. My mom, you know, she's um, she's a Christian and she has that unconditional love and she loves me anyway. So she said to you, she's going to love you no matter what? Basically, yes, ma'am. Opening up to her mom was the first step. Tammy finally felt like she was finding herself. It was like a 10,000 pounds was lifted off of me. To know who I was, but I still felt like a freak, like I couldn't tell anyone except my mom. So Tammy continued to live a fairly closeted life in the South. She went to rehab for her heroin addiction, 
started Narcotics Anonymous, and got clean. And for years, she just worked a job in construction and lived a low-key life. She went to gay bars to be around others she could relate to, but publicly, she kept her sexuality to herself. So you've never seen her with a girlfriend or anything like that? I have seen her with a girlfriend. I haven't seen her display affection with a girlfriend. Gotcha. Other than just, you know, hey, this is my buddy, you know. I know that she's been with them, but just not in front of me. At the age of 31, over a decade after she got clean from heroin, Tammy relapsed. In January 2000, she checked herself into the Katy Hill Drug Recovery Center in Columbus, Mississippi. Basically, I knew I didn't want to go back where I had come from, and I had to do something about it. What do you mean back where you came from? A heroin. At Katie Hill, Tammy was again in a 12-step recovery program. And while there, she met 20-year-old Lee Stubbs. Lee had recently broken up with her boyfriend and, like Tammy a decade before, had spiraled into drug addiction. So tell me about meeting Lee. What was Lee like? She was cool. She just had that personality, that trait, that distinct distinction about her. Um, on the inside, just with conversations and the way we play and the way we worked well together and things like that. We were good, very good friends. And then it turned into more than that. Was that a conversation you guys had that you were both gay? Like, how did that come about that you guys... Ah, gaydar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but, you know, you can kind of tell. By March of 2000, both Tammy and Lee were nearing the end of the program and were allowed certain privileges, like weekend passes to leave and see family. The first time they were romantic was on a weekend trip home. It turned out their destinations were just an hour away from each other. Well, see, her mom was in Collins and my mom was in Byron. So she went to her mom's. I went to my mom's. And the next morning we hooked back up. She came to Byron and we went and rode the swinging bridge. What's a swinging bridge? I don't know what that is. It's an old timey bridge that sways when you like drive across it we would like get to going really fast and then just slam on the brakes in the middle of it and it would just sway us yeah it was real cool we spent the whole weekend together tammy and lee had a sweet time together visiting tammy's hometown and then they headed back to katie hill but when they arrived they found the place in an uproar there is this discriminational thing going on because someone had hung a black doll on a doorknob. And it was a really racial thing. And it was a lot of drama. And, you know, we had just gotten there. And it was all this going on. To avoid the chaos, Tammy and Lee decided to leave again in a hurry, stuffing their clothes and belongings into garbage bags and throwing them in the back of Lee's truck. As they were about to go, they saw their friend Kim Williams, who was also packing to leave. Kim asked, could she have a ride? She wanted to ride to her boyfriend's. So we said, sure, we'll take you. 
The three women drove through Mississippi, stopping along the way to buy liquor. Him and I were drinking. Lee was not. She was driving. And we made it all the way to Canton, Mississippi. We stopped and got another fifth of liquor. Made it to Jackson, Mississippi. Finally, they made it to Kim's boyfriend's house. But as they were dropping Kim off, she and her boyfriend got in a fight. Unlike Tammy and Lee, Kim hadn't actually finished rehab, and her boyfriend was mad she hadn't stayed in treatment. So, anyway, she comes and gets in our truck and asks us to take her to her uncle's house. Okay, so we say, sure. So... We get down the road, and she pulls out all these pills. Xanax, Soma, Oxycontin, a lot of narcotics. It turns out Kim had stolen the pills from her boyfriend, who had been prescribed them for his back. I had been drinking. She had been drinking. We both took a handful. You just left rehab. Why were you using? Um, I just, I was a follower and not the leader I should have been. I couldn't find what I needed, which was some weed. And so I just started drinking. That's what happened. All right. So you guys took the drugs and then what? Passed out. We passed out. And Lee didn't know what to do. She was in the middle of nowhere. She pulled into a motel. She actually told the lady at the front desk, you know, if these two in the truck look dead, they're not drunk. And so we pulled in, and basically she grabbed us both under our arms into the damn motel room, into the motel room, I'm sorry, and um, laid us on the bed. When I woke up, she was awake watching Scooby-Doo. I was very sick, puking sick, and dehydrated to death, the thirstiest I've ever been in my life. And so I asked her, would she please, please go get me something to drink? And so she ran down to the Coke machine. And while she was gone, I was literally drowning in my own puke. She comes back in with the drinks and uh, pulls my head up out the water. And what was Kim doing at this point? She was still passed out on the other bed, fully dressed, shoes and all, and snoring like she was in like a deep sleep. By then, it was the next day, March 6th, around 4 p.m., and Kim was still asleep. Tammy says Kim was snoring so loudly that when she stopped, it was noticeable. And Tammy could hear that something was wrong. And I told Lee, she's not breathing. She's not breathing. Lee got on the phone with 911, and I administered CPR until the ambulance got there. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and to making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where they work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Kim had overdosed. When the paramedics arrived, 
Tammy and Lee tried to be as helpful as possible. As a matter of fact, we even gave them the drugs she took from her boyfriend and told them where she took them from. We gave them to the people in the ambulance so that they would know what she was on so they would know what to do. The paramedics gave Kim Narcan to try and reverse the drug's effects. She was rushed to the hospital in a coma and respiratory arrest. Once at the hospital, Kim was diagnosed as having suffered an overdose. But a nurse also noted that Kim had injuries that didn't seem to be related to the overdose. Allegedly, her breasts were swollen, her vagina was bruised and swollen, and there were bite marks on her body and marks on her butt that looked like they could have come from a beating with a stick or a belt. A doctor described it as looking like a, quote, brutal sexual assault. The doctor informed police that Kim had been sexually assaulted. Police immediately questioned Tammy and Lee. They wanted to know what happened, and we told them. But officers didn't believe them that it was solely an overdose. They continued to push the belief that Kim had been assaulted. I remember thinking they were crazy because that was our friend. And we tried to save her. We were trying to save her. And um, they promised us, actually, if we would take a lie detector test with the highway patrol, that uh, it would be over with. The questioning would be over with. We both agreed. We both passed, and the questioning never stopped. Fortunately, Kim survived. She woke up 12 days later with no memory of what had happened whatsoever, which meant that she could not definitively report whether or not she was assaulted. Six months after the incident, on September 20th, 2000, Tammy and Lee were arrested and charged with taking and possessing Kim's boyfriend's Oxycontin and the aggravated assault of Kim Williams. The following year, in June of 2001, Tammy and Lee went to trial. The prosecutors were District Attorneys Dunn Lampton and Jerry Rushing. Their case was that Tammy and Lee had conspired with Kim to steal her boyfriend's Oxycontin pills. The state alleged that once Kim passed out, Tammy and Lee violently sexually assaulted her. And that that violent sexual assault involves very severe bite marks, involves biting off part of Kim's labia, and that this behavior is indicative of a homosexual assault, of a lesbian assault. This is Valina Beattie, an attorney formerly with the Mississippi Innocence Project, which ultimately took on Tammy and Lee's case. Valina says the crux of the state's case was that lesbians are sexual deviants. So the fact that Kim was with her two lesbian friends, Tammy and Lee, uh, right before she overdosed and was brought to the hospital, leads the police and the prosecutor in a direct line to the two of them as having assaulted her. Valina also says the prosecutors knew the jury pool they would have in Brookhaven, Mississippi, and targeted their case accordingly. It would have been a very Christian town. And at the time, if we looked at studies that were done on jurors and homophobia, we did see a connection between people who were particularly religious and 
heightened homophobia among jurors. So just looking at that information from juries, we could see how a jury in Mississippi at that time, you know, might be more likely to see Lee and Tammy as not just deviant because of their sexual orientation, but violent because of their sexual orientation. The state's star witness was Dr. Michael West, who was at the time a renowned forensic odontologist. So bite mark evidence or forensic odontology is the belief that by looking at a mark on skin, we're able to tell whether a certain person created that mark with their teeth. Dr. West was an expert in bite mark evidence. He testified for prosecution offices in nine different states. At Tammy's trial, Dr. West testified that there appeared to be a bite mark on Kim's hip and said it was likely from Lee. West went on to say, quote, and it's more than just a possibility to me. I would see it as a probability. But is it a probability of actual 100%? No. Prosecutors then asked Dr. West his opinion on whether he would expect to find bite marks in a homosexual rape case. He said that would not be unusual. In fact, it could almost be expected. And that's with this history in the United States of seeing queerness as dangerous, as depraved, as deviant, and as violent. So all of that uh, meshes together against this person who is kind and innocent, but is perceived a different way because of her open sexual orientation. In addition to the bite marks, Dr. West extended his so-called expertise to other aspects of the case. He also analyzed the surveillance footage from the night the three women stayed at the motel. The footage appears to show someone taking something from the toolbox in Lee's truck and carrying it into the motel room. What West is telling the jury it is, is that Lee is picking up Kim's body that they have put into the toolbox, picking up Kim's body and carrying her into the hotel room. When you have an expert like Dr. West who's on the stand and is showing that video you know, again and again and again and again, and each time telling the jury, this is a body, there are the legs, there's the long hair, this is Kim, the jury then starts to believe it. The defense did refute this, however. Tammy's defense attorney was Kem McNeese, and Lee's was Bill Barnett. Both were private attorneys. They presented evidence that hair was found in the toolbox and that it was not Kim's. They also called Dr. Rodrigo Galvez, a forensic pathologist, who said that Kim could not have physically fit in the toolbox. I mean, and this idea that they could put her in a toolbox and then that Lee could whisk her out of this toolbox in a matter of seconds, you know, like lift up her friend who weighs the same weight that she does and jump off the back of the truck with her is incredibly fanciful. Dr. Galvez also said there were many other objects that could have possibly made the alleged bite marks. However, upon cross-examination, Dr. Galvez dealt an unexpected blow to the defense by admitting he would expect to find biting in a situation involving a lesbian rape. 
And then he gives this really shocking testimony about how lesbians and homosexuals are more likely to to commit violent assaults, that the most violent assaults he's ever seen have been homosexual assaults. I mean, it's all of this magical thinking to create this story and this narrative where Lee and Tammy are violent and violent against Kim, which they're not. I never believed it for a moment. I never for one fraction of a second believed that her or Lee physically hurt someone. Even though you're sitting there at trial and the prosecutor is saying gay people are deviants and this is what they do, you still didn't believe it? No, ma'am. And never will. On June 30th, 2001, the jury convicted both Tammy and Lee of all charges. They were ordered to pay $115,000 in fines and costs, as well as half of Kim's medical bills, and they were each sentenced to 44 years in prison. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations 
questions that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. After their conviction, Tammy and Lee were both sent to the same prison, the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility in Pearl, Mississippi. Did you continue a relationship when you were in prison? Things had really changed with all of this. Um, We remained friends, and we have a bond that cannot be broken. But romantically, it wasn't wasn't there anymore. No, ma'am. It kind of ended right there. But our friendship became stronger. Me and Lee would meet on that yard alone, and we would discuss our case. Like how you were going to prove your innocence? Yes, ma'am. What was the plan? We were researching cases, law library. We were reaching out with family, attorneys, innocent projects, writing letters, helping inmates, doing all we could to survive. While Tammy and Lee were busy fighting for their innocence from prison, their families were also helping on the outside. Lee's father filed a Freedom of Information Act petition requesting documents relating to any analysis performed on the surveillance video from the motel. And what he got back was shocking. They found out that someone at the FBI had been asked pre-trial to examine the surveillance video and had done a complete report on it, saying, okay, there's only one person in the video, there's not two, and that one person is taking a unidentified dark object out of the toolbox that they don't think it's a body. These FBI analysis results were never disclosed to the defense or the jury. What we are actually seeing is a blurry image, because it's a surveillance video, of Lee getting up into the flatbed of the truck, opening up the toolbox that is in the back of the flatbed, and taking out these garbage bags that are filled with her clothes from the rehab facility. And then she's jumping down and taking the bags with her. That's what we're seeing. Armed with this new evidence, the Mississippi Innocence Project took on the case. When the Innocent Project fell into place is when hope set in. Because finally, somebody else in this world, this whole wide world, believed in us. Finally. In 2011, Valina and the Mississippi Innocence Project filed a petition claiming that Dr. West presented false evidence and that the prosecution had failed to disclose the results of the FBI analysis of the surveillance video. By this time, Dr. West had also been completely discredited. As early as 1994, his credibility was being questioned. News outlets like 60 Minutes profiled him and the dubious science of bite mark evidence. West was eventually suspended by the American Board of Forensic Odontology. Bite mark evidence is now considered junk science. In fact, 
Dr. West has now testified in at least five cases where the person was wrongfully convicted based on bite mark evidence and later exonerated. In a 2011 deposition, Dr. West even testified that he no longer believed his own testimony about the bite marks on Kim's body. He admitted that if he was asked to testify in Tammy and Lee's case again, he would say, quote, I don't believe it's a system that's reliable enough to be used in court. And so what did it all wind up being? Was it actually a bite mark? No. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) No. And half of her labia was not missing either. Um, So no, none of that ended up being true or accurate at all. Valina says that the supposed bite mark evidence on Kim's hip was actually just a bruise. And while there was potentially evidence of a sexual encounter, there was no evidence of it being a non-consensual assault. On June 27, 2012, over a decade after they were convicted, Lincoln County Circuit Court Judge Michael Taylor agreed that Tammy and Lee did not get a fair trial and granted them a new one. They were released on bond that same day. What was it like when you found out that your case was going to be overturned and you were going to get a new trial? I actually sat down and cried. Happy tears. Yeah. Did you ever think that would happen? No, ma'am. I really thought I was going to die alone in prison. Sandy remembers the day she picked up Tammy from prison. That day, it was just a, a joyful day to, to get her out. The news people were there, and of course, Felina and them were there. And it was just it was just so awesome to get to hold her and take her to eat her favorite foods, things like macaroni and cheese and roast and green potatoes. It was hard to eat those things when she was in there knowing she couldn't. And we had bought her Christmas presents every year, so her bed was piled high with her Christmas presents from the years she'd been gone. So it was wonderful to bring her home. Tammy wound up pleading no contest to a charge of possession of Oxycontin. The rest of the charges were eventually thrown out. Today, Tammy and Lee are still friends. Lee is a nurse, and Tammy is busy trying to make up for the years she lost in prison. I'm very simple. I enjoy the uh, cool stuff in life because, you know, I had no time to choose what that what I had to go do was that innocent time. So I like to fly kites. I like to feed ducks. Um, I like to take long rides in the country. I'm just... Hippie and cool. If you'd like to help support the Mississippi Innocence Project, now known as the George C. Cochran Innocence Project, go to innocenceproject.olemiss.edu. Valina also wrote a book about Tammy and Lee and the wrongful convictions of women called Manifesting Justice. The links to all of this will be in our bio.
Next time on Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling, James Richardson. Do you think race had anything to do with this? As far as me getting convicted, I do. When they felt like a black person killed two white individuals, they feel like, okay, yeah, we got to show him. But I didn't do it. Thanks for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wordis, as well as our senior producer, Annie Chelsea, producer Lila Robinson, and story editor Sonia Paul. The show is edited and mixed by Annie Chelsea, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both Instagram and Twitter at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.